welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today for what is now episode 169. And as always, you are joined by your hosts, Tiara and Jack. Now, once again, we've got a Q&A lined up for you. So Jack, I'm going to hit you up with this first question. It's a pretty interesting one, and I think that we can have a pretty good discussion on it. It says, do you think there should be entry requirements to compete, aka you actually have to be in condition? And I think this is a pretty interesting question. And as a matter of fact, I actually had a pretty similar discussion with Lawrence Grieve and Joey Cantlin over on Lawrence's podcast. We recorded an episode a few months ago, but now back in June of 2022, and uh, it was called Is Bodybuilding a Sport? And we actually briefly went over this exact topic. So if you guys want to go check out that podcast, it's over on the General Muscle podcast, and that was episode 35. But Jack, I want to hear your take on this. Do you think that there should be entry requirements to compete? In terms specifically to conditioning? I yes. A uh, short answer would be no. I don't think it's really necessary. And I honestly think it would just be too hard to regulate because... Mm. Like it's a subjective sport. So I don't think we can really expect people to like maybe objectively measure their body fat. And if you get below a certain number, then you are allowed entry into the show because we know that it's very easy to modify your body fat. Mm. You just drink a big, like down a couple of liters of water before you step on to the DEXA pad or until you use the BIA analysis. And also like, alternatively like what would one of the judges have to prematurely assess your physique and kind of give you a tick to to kind of uh give you the okay to compete in shape is allowed to enter (laughs) i love how you mentioned how it's already a subjective sport to begin with so now we're applying even more subjectivity Mm. on top of such a subjective sport (laughs) yeah plus also like there are depending on how far you pursue bodybuilding, there are entry requirements. Like for example, the pro ranks, you have to be a pro and therefore you'd hope that in the pro ranks, there's a certain degree of conditioning withheld mm-hmm. across every competitor. Mm-hmm. Especially considering that the standard is changing every single year, particularly in the natty realms. You know, People keep finding new limits to just how freaking conditioned they can actually show up to a show. So... Who knows, maybe eight years ago, someone might've showed up and it'd be like, wow, you know, they've got a really impressive physique. They're in great condition. They show up now and it's like, "Mm, yeah, it's actually pretty average, but it's actually not near the top anymore. You're probably placing fourth or fifth. You're not placing first or second anymore. So Mm. the standard's always changing as well. So you always keep having to ultimately keep chasing more and more conditioning these days. Yeah, for sure. And Having been to quite a few bodybuilding shows in the past few years, like you don't really see many people anymore who have poor conditioning, mm. um, like to the point where it's looked like they've just finished their off season or maybe they've done a couple of weeks of, of dieting. That's super rare. And I have seen a few people who intentionally do compete in their off season, like maybe only a handful of pe- people. I do find that a little bit odd because I think it potentially discredits the sport a little bit in my opinion but i can sort of understand why they choose to do that Mm, absolutely but i totally agree i think it's far less common to see people showing up now to shows who get on stage and they look out of place 
compared to people are showing up in very competitive conditioning. And I think that just says a lot about the sport and how far it's come and how far it's continuing to go because it shows that coaches and athletes now, they're undertaking preps where they have a strong understanding of the criteria. They understand that there's a hell of a lot of other people out there who are taking this very seriously because it is a competition at the end of the day. And they're giving themselves ample time during their preps to lose the required amount of body fat. And there's more strategic protocols in place that are allowing people to maintain more muscle mass. People just aren't doing as many silly things as they probably used to in the past. And uh, people are really promoting that, you know, you take longer improvement seasons and you take them seriously and you properly develop your physique so that when you do lean down, you do truly look conditioned. So yeah, I just think it's a testament to the sport that it's come a long way and it's a lot more rare these days to actually see people showing up who look like they didn't really try (laughs) compared to people who show up and it's like, wow, they kicked their butt to be here today. Yeah. And I think the overarching thing too, is that ultimately the Federation is there to make money and like if it makes it more difficult for more people to enter like that goes against the the business aspect of the federation Mm -hmm. but at the same time we have to think about the sport that we're involved in as well like you are literally getting up on a stage wearing next to nothing like the guys you really just have trunks on (laughs) at least us girls we've got two pieces on and we've got some shoes and some jewelry but you're literally getting up on a stage and asking a panel of judges to take a good hard look at you and tell you what's wrong with your physique and how you need to keep improving your physique because people need to remember that when you are actually being judged up there for federations that actually have scorecards so for example the ifbb they're not giving you scores to say "Mm, i really like his delts or "Mm, she's got great glutes they're actually marking you down. So when they are scoring you, it's the person with the lowest score that actually wins compared to other sports. If you score the most goals and you have the highest score or the most baskets in a game, you have the highest score, you win. But as a physique competitor, it's the person with the lowest score that actually wins. The people with the highest scores, those marks were saying like, "Mm, no, they need to improve this and that and this and that. So you're actually going up there and just showcasing yourself and you're asking them to say, okay, what, what's actually wrong with your physique here? So what I'm trying to get at is that probably puts people in a very, very vulnerable position where they might feel a bit insecure. So if you are actually going to go to the extent and literally pay thousands of dollars throughout a prep to then finally end up on show day, standing up on that stage, you want to be really proud of yourself and you want to look your absolute best and know that you really put in the work to demonstrate something that really is worth showcasing in your eyes. So I'd say it's far less common these days to see people out of place up there. But at the same time, I just don't think that we can discriminate to say who's in condition, who's not, because at the end of the day, it is a choice who wants to compete, but It's kind of like telling someone who wants to participate in a marathon that they're not allowed to if they are intending to just walk the majority of the way. Like, I don't think that's fair at all because one, 
you don't know that person's backstory. You never know what their starting position was. They might be recovering and healing from a very long lasting injury that had them incapable of even walking for a very long time and being mobile. So actually being able to then even walk the distance of a marathon, that's going to be a huge personal feat for them. And I really don't think it's fair to rob someone of that opportunity. Similar to competing, that's why we have the transformation categories and different categories of that nature so that people can really demonstrate, okay, cool, maybe I don't look like a pro athlete yet, but look at how far I've come and look at what my starting position was. And that's something that I'm really proud of and that's something that I wanna showcase. So similar to the person who wants to enter the marathon, but they just intend on walking, by all means, let them walk the distance of the marathon. Like they're not gonna get in your way. If you're running the marathon, you'll be far ahead of them and you don't need to worry about that person. They shouldn't be on your mind. And even if they were next to you, why the heck is that bothering you as well? And even then, like you have to consider that the large majority of people who are entering the race of a marathon they are planning to run the distance. Similar to how the large majority of competitors who enter into a bodybuilding competition, they are there to compete to the highest standard that they possibly can. And depending on what type of individual you are in this circumstance, so if you are the marathon runner or the marathon walker, or in this case, you might be someone who's showing up to a bodybuilding competition still very proud of what you've achieved during your own journey, but you aren't at the top level where you're probably gonna be finishing with a podium placing. It's also about having realistic expectations too and understanding that, okay, today it's unlikely that I am going to be a winner, but just being at peace and actually accepting that before you actually take part in the competition too, I think that's very fair, particularly just to yourself. and. Like the comment that you made, it is a business at the end of the day and the promoters are there to earn money. And bodybuilding, it's an expensive sport. You know, competitors, each time they step on stage, a certain stage entry can be anywhere in the realm of like 75 to $250 just to step on stage once. And that doesn't include all of the other copious fees that come along with being a bodybuilder. So man, someone's not going to refuse an entry of $250 if someone wants to just step on the stage. Mm, for sure, it's just making money. <laughs> Is that all it's about, just making money? Well, I mean, hopefully not for <laughs> the promoters and the event organizers. I think in something like bodybuilding, you have to be passionate about it, even even if you are just hosting the event and you might not be a bodybuilder them, yourself. Like there's other avenues to make money which I'm sure is more productive than mm -hmm. than being in the bodybuilding industry yeah but I think that passion really shines through with a lot of the MCs for mm. some of these big federations so Jason Woodforth Tony Doherty like when they're up there on the mic like the, you can just tell they freaking love what they're doing but at the same time they also just love seeing a lot of bodies on stage too and just having a good amount of entries to the show so it's a big show mm. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll move on to the second question. It says, what are your thoughts on including warm up sets in a training program? For example, adding more weight to each set. 
So I think this might be similar to like a pyramid style training where you might, I don't know, do five sets and you might pyramid up to that third set, which would be your maybe maximal set. And then you would then pyramid down, which would also be sub-maximal as well. I used to do this, uh, dare I say it, before I knew better. (laughs) (laughs) And not that this is bad per se, but we know that like around zero to three reps in reserve is the most effective proximity to failure to grow muscle and i think if you're pyramiding if like four out of those five sets are submaximal and you're like maybe have three plus reps in reserve then it's not the most optimal position to be in for hypertrophy and for muscle gain and sure when when we program like if we really need to we'll we'll definitely discuss warming up and we'll discuss how many warm-up sets you should do and like what the load should be if the if the client needs assistance with that most of the time they're fine because ultimately the warm-up component of your workout should be quite efficient and short unless you have extra sort of things that you need to work on as per your physio's advice um like you might have some rehab work to do that your physio might recommend before starting your workout but in reality like i don't think we need to dedicate a lot of time and energy to warming up Mm. Yeah, and I think that's why it's just important to differentiate between what is a warm-up set and what is a working set. Because like you said, for something to actually be effective for muscle growth, we probably need to be in a range of maybe three three reps at least from true failure. And if you're warming up, you should not be taking those sets to within a close proximity to failure. Otherwise, they cross over to working sets. So yeah, it's just important to differentiate there. So if your coach programs you like, let's say three sets of 10 to 12 on a barbell hip thrust, like you need to do some warm up sets prior. Let's, if that's like one of your first exercises in your program, if you feel that's necessary, otherwise like those three sets of 10 to 12, those are working sets. So, and you and I, we generally actually prescribe that people lift the same amount of weight for all of their working sets, unless they're actually doing top sets and back off sets. But that's different to the pyramids because you don't build your way up to the top set, then come back down. Like you get warm and amped up and then you do your top set first when you are the strongest and the most fresh and just the most mentally ready to actually tackle that set for the top set and then you do a back off set afterward. You wouldn't do it the other way around because then you might compromise your performance in that top set. Well, also like a back off set is the same intensity as the top set. Mm. It's just a different rep range. So it wouldn't matter whether you did the back off set first because it would traditionally back off sets are more reps. So you'd just be doing a higher rep set before your lower rep set, Mm. which I I do for some exercises, like a leg press, I'll do more a higher rep set first and then a lower rep set. Oh, really? Mm. Oh, damn. I always do it the other way around. Yeah, I mean, I traditionally do it the low and then high, but sometimes Mm. I do high than low. Yeah, I guess for me, it's just a lot more mental. Mm. I would be interested though, like what do you do to make sure that you are warmed up and that you're ready to get into your working sets? Yeah, so I, I... I will disclaim that I think maybe a a physiotherapist would be the most qualified to answer this. Mm. But the way I see it is getting warm per se, physically, but also mentally as well. So real, like I would even say that I spend too much time on my warm up, especially for lower body days, but it's more of a 
the part of that is more psychological now where I have a routine, I'll do it. So like, for example, on my lower body day, I might do a tiny bit of rolling on my back ball, my trigger ball. And then I will do some like adductor and abductor warmups, which do I think they're necessary? Probably not. Um, and then I'll do like some Bulgarians and single leg RDLs, all of which takes me about 10 to 15 minutes. And then when I actually get to my first exercise, which is this is what's more so similar to my upper body days is I'll maybe do two or three warm up sets for that first leg day movement and and then I'll get into my working sets mm-hmm. and then if I feel like I'll need to do I'll do one warm up set for a for those subsequent movements and that's more so going to be mental than physical really is is getting used to that movement pattern for just a few reps uh, before I actually do a top set on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's it's just a ritual for mm. you, right? But you wouldn't count like those few exercises that you do for your adductors or your abductors or your single leg Bulgarians. Like you wouldn't be counting those on your training program as no. like tick, tick, tick. I actually did these exercises per se. Yeah, I'm not trying trying to progress the load or the reps or anything. It's really just to get blood flowing in those areas mm. and it's also the subjective feel per se of, Mm. of that, those movements. Yeah. And that's a good point, right? Like we have to think about what does it actually mean to get warm? It means to actually increase your heart rate, increase your blood pressure, actually just getting more blood circulating around your body at a faster rate to increase your core body temperature. So for example, when you and I used to walk to the gym, when we trained at world's gym, Brisbane, in a sense, that was like our warm up because we're walking out in the sun for 15 minutes to the gym. So when we get to the gym, you don't then have to hop on a treadmill or hop on a cardio machine because that's a pretty common question to be like, you know, what should I be doing prior to my training session? Should I maybe go for a little walk on my training session? Maybe if it's a case of like you work a nine to five and then you catch the train straight to the gym or the bus or you drive straight to the gym, you've been sitting all day. I really don't think it would hurt to actually Mm. maybe do a little bit of a walk. But if you've been on your feet all day and you're a waitress or something like that, then you rock up to the gym after work, boy, you are warm. You probably don't need to be doing more steps. You're probably already racking them up. But I think one of the best ways to actually get mentally and physically ready for a certain lift, particularly the compounds at the beginning of your training session, is to specifically do that exercise. Mm, For sure. Yeah, I think there definitely are a lot of people who will just literally head into the gym and then go into their first working set, mm. not do any warm up. And I think that's just as bad as spending half an hour doing uh, irrelevant warm ups yeah. or some maximal sets. Or doing an exercise that, sure, it might target similar muscle groups, but it's not specific to the movement. So let's say that you are about to go do some barbell back squats. You don't need to be doing a whole bunch of walking lunges right before you go do your barbell back squats and then you just load up your working weight and just go straight away like you need to actually get that bar on your back to and actually going through the movement pattern I think that's so freaking important and something that I actually do personally for my big compound lifts is that like I will always just do one rep with my working weight to demonstrate to myself that I can lift it like it gives me a strong sense of self-belief and be like you know, I tell myself before, like, 
lightweight baby. Like this is easy. You got this just one rep and I just do it. And I make sure like I started off on a really good note and I set a very high standard for myself. So I just do one very powerful rep and I'm like, cool, let's go. Like I, I've proven to myself that I can do this. Then I can hop into a set of like anywhere between maybe six to 10 or something like that. But I think that's really important too, is to just expose yourself to that top set weight for at least one rep before you then actually do the full set itself. And again, a lot of this stuff is mental, man. Mm. I mean, personally, I don't really expose myself to the top set weight. I'll do something relatively close to it, but not not the full load. Mm. So maybe anywhere from 70 to 90%, I mm. would say. Okay, cool. Well, some people do it, you know, like, yeah, or I like agree. if someone was doing like a back squat or something, like, Maybe they don't actually do a full rep with that one weight, but they might actually unrack the bar on their back and just stand there with that weight on their back again so that they can just get a feel for it and just be like, cool, I know I can do this. Yeah. <laughs> but either way, guys, please differentiate between your warm up sets and your working sets because, uh, yeah. Well, I think some people train um, as, as, as if the whole workout is a warm up. <laughs> Well, they're definitely very hot then. <laughs> That's the way to build a hot body. They're Just certainly ready to, only, ready to do, only do warm-up sets. <laughs> okay. Um, so, Jack, this next question, it says, what's the biggest difference between this off-season versus your previous off-seasons? Yeah, so I kind of answered this on BDU. So uh, I'm sure we have a few crossover listeners, but... Maybe I'll try and flesh it out a bit more on uh, on this episode. So, I mean, the, the main difference for this offseason would be that I have uh, AJ as a coach. Like, I never really had um, anyone overseeing strictly my, my other offseason. I did in, in prep. And I think, one, what AJ has helped me with is, like, keeping the bodybuilding passion alive throughout the whole offseason and just... Because he is very much immersed in the bodybuilding natural scene. Like I can discuss with him, like to be honest, a lot of the check-ins with me and AJ is less so about what I need to be doing because I'm, I'm good at that. Like I know what to do. It's more about like just discussing stuff about bodybuilding and discussing things that have been happening. And I find that that really helps me. Um, and I think at the beginning, AJ was reconstructing a lot of uh, the movements that I was, not necessarily the movements I was doing, but how I was executing them, just ensuring that the the target musculature was being emphasized for, for a particular movement. So I know a big one for me was changing up the way I do lat pull downs. So turning it into like a more of uh, a much more significant lat bias compared to a upper back dominant bias. Um, things like that. And I think part of it's also me just being older this time around. Like I'm, I've just have more years under my belt mm-hmm. and cause I wouldn't, my, my strength is quite significantly higher this time around. And I wouldn't necessarily attribute that all to AJ. I think definitely having better execution and longer times in a surplus would, would help with that. But yeah, if I, if I had to pick one thing, it's just, uh, slightly lower volume. Okay, two things: slightly lower volume and better execution of, across the board. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, man. The whole fact of getting older, right? Like some people, like they're ashamed to say their age, you know, or they're like, oh man, you know, my birthday's coming up one year older. The way I look at it is I'm like, man, one extra year of muscle maturity provided mm. that you actually resistance train. But, you know, we're no Benjamin Buttons. We definitely ain't getting younger or we're not growing into babies. We're getting big. But yeah, man, bring it on. Bring on the years. Like I just, I, I, I love every single day. I'm definitely not wishing time away, but man, I celebrate an extra year of life, especially an extra year of training. Mm. At what age do you think you'll start thinking otherwise though? Oh man, I don't know. I think you and I were having this conversation the other day. Like, is there ever going to be a point where we stop doing what we're doing? Like we're just so genuinely immersed in it and passionate about it. I really see myself as that like 93 year old woman still RDLing. No joke. <laughs> it's going to be me. I'm definitely going to live over to be over a hundred provided that nothing happens to me. I'll try my absolute best, but, uh, yeah, definitely here to keep walking the planet for a good long time and uh, lifting some heavy weights. Awesome. Yeah, I think the other component with me, I was actually talking about this with you yesterday is I was calculating how much time I've spent in a deficit. Mm. And so I started my off season basically in early March of 2021. So it's been well over a year and a half now or about a year and a half. And I've spent three, three weeks in a deficit. So less than one month out of 18 uh, in a deficit, which, I mean, I was pretty good at that in previous off seasons, but I've definitely stretched that out even more so this time around. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, I think that's huge. I would just say that I have was more efficient in the cutting phases this time around because mm. I, yeah, literally halved the amount of time that I would usually take probably. Mm -hmm. But what about you? Oh man, there's so many things that have changed for me this improvement season. Again, it's just a fact of you're getting older, you're becoming more educated, more experienced, wiser, you're learning from your past lessons. So you're just always leveling up in so many different ways. Like I feel like there is a completely different brain in Tiara Nelson's head in 2022 compared to what was in 2021. And I reflect back on 2021 and I thought that I was a hell of a lot more mentally strong than the years prior. So yeah, every single year, I think just developing my mindset is a huge one. But if I had to name one thing, it would definitely just be learning that skill of truly training really, really hard and learning that less is more in terms of set volume. Because boy, if we go back through these podcasts, maybe even a few years ago, you caught on to the two set train a lot mm. earlier than me. And you were even hinting like, Tara, you, you just got to try it. I think this is when back in 2020, when we were in lockdown and you started doing two sets and I was like, that's a bit absurd <laughs> while I was still there doing four sets for everything. But it's the fact that you never know until you try and coming from like an endurance background or just that mindset of just like hard work is always defined by working for more amount of time or just doing more in general it does reach a point of diminishing returns. So I think once I finally bit that bullet of being like, you don't need to do so much and less is actually more, that's when my training really, really started to level up. And I started to just really realize that, wow, I actually have the potential to be a hell of a lot stronger and progress my strength at a much, much faster rate compared to the past. Cause if I was looking back at my old log books, like, 
No wonder I was stuck on the same weight for dumbbell shoulder press for so long, like lifting the 15 kilograms for God knows how long, because I was doing like four or five sets. Like that's just ridiculous. Or something like my lunges, no duh, they were stuck on like the realm of 50 or 60 kilograms for so long because I was doing four sets per leg. That's eight sets. Like sure, it's a hell of a lot of caloric burn, but my strength was just tapping out. And gosh, did I get anxious for those. <laughs> like to think that I get anxious now for just two sets of lunges or two sets of a Bulgarian or, or an RDL or anything of that nature. But yeah, I used to be just be stuck on very similar weights for a long, long time because I was just doing so much set volume. But once I finally bit the bullet and like, it's almost like my body was giving me hints, particularly with my Smith machine lunges, because after I would do two sets and it was already really, really tough, like I would just feel like this overwhelming sense of just anxiety and just exhaustion, knowing that I was only 50% way through. I'm like, God, I got to do this all over again. It was genuinely just very tough in its own sense. But once I swapped over to, for my lower body compounds, just doing two high quality sets, my strength has just gone through the roof. So like, for example, in the past year alone, like I was able to add an additional 30 kilograms onto my Smith machine lunges. It went up from 60 kilograms for like four sets of eight to 12 up to 90 kilograms now for like two sets of eight and same with RDLs, you know, like I was stuck on like 70 kilograms for ages within a matter of months of just going down to two sets up to a hundred kilograms, like even dumbbell RDLs went from like 27 and a half up to the fifties. That's twice as much weight because I dropped the set volume. And it's not a case of, I was like, oh, I'm just, I'm going to, I feel like being lazy. So I want to do less. No, obviously the trade-off is you have to push yourself arguably even harder and G yourself up to lift those amount of weights. But you know what? It's actually translated into me having the most muscular physique I've ever had, which has obviously been built over time. But that's my thing, right? Is just like learning that less is more and boy, like two sets for some big compounds. It's just a freaking game changer for just your strength potential, your mindset. And you just got to try it, man. Guys, you, can, you got nothing to lose. <laughs> you literally start experiencing the benefits like immediately because you never realize how much you're actually even subconsciously conserving for that third or that fourth set. And mm. like, you'll just, you'll actually have the desire to put on more weight. Cause if you keep using the weights that you were doing previously, you'll get to the end of the second set. You'll be like, Oh yeah, a little bit puffed, but like, I still feel like there's still more left in the tank. So yeah, you just, you get, you get to empty it. And it's like, I only got to do it twice. <laughs> yeah. I think that's quite a common response to people doing two sets or trying it is that they'll do that second set and they'll feel like they could do another two sets. Mm which is an immediate indication that you are capable of lifting more weight mm, for sure. Yeah. So that yeah, just freaking give it a go. And that's what I meant earlier in the podcast by people doing lots of warm up sets is that like once you, if you're used to doing three or let's say four or five sets and you switch to two or three, you will then realize that a lot of the sets that you are doing out of those four or five sets are just some maximal mm. 
warm-up sets mm-hmm. or just the maximal sets in general. Yeah, but the mental fatigue all of those warm-up sets would take on you as well. Like sometimes you just want to get into the session and just freaking go, especially like it's almost like a sparkler that you're going to put into a cake and you light it. It's like fizzing out. It's like really, really sparkling at the top. And then at, by the end, like it's just starting to fade. I feel like sometimes that it, that's what it's like during a training session. Like you're really G'd up at the very beginning and ready to just hit it hard. But then those sparkles start to fade. You're like, whew, okay. I like, I, I, it's almost time to go home now. If you're mm. doing way too many warm up sets, you're just going to tap out really soon mentally. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Anyway, guys, level up, try the two sets. It's an absolute game changer. But Jack, I think those are a few good questions for this week. I'm going to chuck one last one over to you that you're not going to chuck right back at me. And it is, what is something that you learned this week? Yes, I'm on the spot here. So I was watching uh, Mr. Jack Thorburn's story on Instagram. Maybe he'll even listen to this. I'm not sure. But he was, uh, he's in his post-comp phase at, in the US and he's eating decent amount of IHOP at the moment, which is only expected post-comp. And he, I mean, I'm taking this on board for when I'm there in 2024 post-show. And he was saying that if you order your pancakes as a side instead of a main, like I think it's the same amount of pancakes, but it's literally like half the price or something. So it's like a little hack if you, if you are... If you're ordering, if you're going to IHOP just for the pancakes, you order, like you get a main if someone else is having a main and then you get a side of pancakes with that. What the heck? How have they not caught on to that? Well, they probably do it on purpose because a lot of people will go to IHOP just for the pancakes. So like it then makes you buy a main as well. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Well, IHOP pancakes, I must say, speaking from experience, from actually eating the things, they are very, very good. There's, mm. there's something in the batter. <laughs> My favorite thing to order at IHOP though, they were called pigs in a blanket. So they, they're like little sausages and then they coat them in pancake batter and then they like deep fry them. Mm. Very, very good. And then you dip those in maple syrup. I don't think I'll see you eat that again though. Oh, I don't know. Maybe we'll have to go to IHOP in 2024. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to video you eating them. A pig in a blanket. They are very good. Yeah, well, I mean, they're done a little bit differently in the UK, I think. How? Well, it was just, I think pigs in a blanket in the UK is just a sausage wrapped in bacon. (laughs) You can't have a pork wrapped in pork. Well, it could be a beef sausage. Okay, a cow wrapped in a pig? Like, no, like the blanket, it has to be soft and fluffy. The bacon doesn't really represent that. Pancake batter does. Well, I'm just saying it's it's different in the UK. Oh, maybe someone, maybe a UK listener can confirm or deny that. They love their protein. <laughs> what did you learn there? Okay, well, I'm going to quote something else that I learned very educational from the Netflix series Down to Earth with... Zac Efron, Down Under. And this one was actually, they were talking about how there is this type of seaweed that they found that they can actually take the seaweed, they can then feed it to cows and enzymatic reactions occur. And essentially it results in the cows, they don't actually release nearly as much methane into the atmosphere, which is very, very cool. So you can actually like denutralize it by just feeding them a little bit of seaweed within like their cow feed and all their hay and stuff. And it dramatically reduces the amount of methane that they burp out. 
that is another thing. A lot of people think that cows are just out there doing the toots and farting, but turns out that the large majority of methane that cows actually release is actually through burps. It's not through farts. So if you're ever drawing like some sort of comic where like a cow is farting, just like take that bubble and put it near its mouth. No. I'll have to revise my comic. Okay. <laughs> well, do, you, do they still do those in the newspapers? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> They're all political anyway. I don't really understand them anyway. But you know, like the comic artists? I'd, I'd understand the move. They were making jokes about bodybuilding, but not about politics. But hey, bodybuilding is political anyway. <laughs> anyway. <what> <laughs> Alright guys, well thank you so much for tuning into today's podcast. If you did enjoy it, please remember to take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag Jack, tag myself, tag TBD, and we will catch you next week.